Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So, maybe starting with the origin of this sutta, why did, or how did it come about? So the story goes is that there was 500 monks and they all received instruction from the Buddha on how to meditate. So they were going off to what they call the rains retreat, which is a four-month period of dedicated practice. And these 500 monks wandered through the lands and they found this amazing place to practice. It was absolutely perfect. It was in this gorgeous meadow. There was a little town nearby where they can go and collect their alms. It was just magical place. There was a stream running by and these huge majestic trees that they could meditate underneath. So they were very excited. They found this perfect place. Little did they know that there were tree deities in, in the trees, tree spirits. And these tree spirits in, inhabited the trees were their, their homes. And the tree spirits were very kind. And so when the monks came to meditate, they thought, that's cool. We'll let them meditate and we're actually going to just kind of move a little bit out of the way and let them do their thing. But the monks kept meditating day after day after day. And the tree spirits were like, hmm, I thought they were just going to hang out for a couple days, and that would be cool, and we'd get to go back into our house, you know, our home, the tree. But the monks didn't leave. So the tree spirits were like, hmm, what can we do to uh, kind of maybe get them to move on? So they conspired to manifest as... Uh, like little uh, angry uh, demons and and they would have loud streak uh, they would say like uh, they would yell in the middle of the night and so they'd see all these manifestations and then they said they also uh, put out this like swamp like stench <laughs> in the air and so the monks as the story goes became very fearful and they had a lot of aversion and it really started to mess with their practice. And until the point where they couldn't meditate anymore. And they said, this is, we can't do this. It's impossible. And so the monks decided, you know, we have to go back to the Buddha and say, hey, we have so much fear and so much aversion that we need help. We can't meditate like this. So they went back. And they talked to the Buddha, and they, he, they told him the story. And through his omniscience, he looked around at all the other places that they can go meditate. And he said, no, you have to go back to the same spot. You have to go back to the same spot. But I'm going to give you this practice. And it's going to help with your fear and aversion. So this, the original Metta Sutta was actually there to help with fear and aversion. Also, too, he knew that it would calm, it would make the relation with the, the spirits also 
that relationship would be um, neutralized, which is exactly what happened. So the, the monks went back and did the, the, the practice of loving kindness and befriended the spirits along the way and also were able to uh, overthrow fear and aversion. So that's, that's the traditional story of, of how this Metta Sutta became to be. But I think it's really interesting to note our uses of loving kindness. Like when we have fear, or we have aversion, like love and fear, they cannot occupy the same space, right? Love and fear cannot. And when we, ha when we come upon fear in our life, this loving kindness practice is crucial, right? Crucial. Fear turns into hate so quickly, right? But also, too, in our practice, which I reiterate all the time. In our practice, sometimes meditation is scary, right? It can be scary sometimes. Anyone ever become upon a scary moment in meditation? Looking in is scary, right? Because we have strong emotions. Thoughts are scary sometimes, right? Some thoughts are very heavy. We have heavy thoughts. We have light thoughts. Some thoughts are, are scary. Or you could say uncomfortable. Aversion. We have a ton of aversion. That's universal when we, when we sit with ourselves. So what overthrows that? Now, one really important distinction, which this is a l many times overlooked, is that when the Buddha gave the Metta Sutta, he gave this as a practice for anger aversion. He also gave it as a practice for samadhi or enlightenment. It is actually a support for our meditation too. You can practice loving kindness all the way to enlightenment. So in Buddhism, there's something called the, the jhanas. These are states of meditative absorption. And usually you take an object, like a, a, a strict object, and you follow that through all the way. So an object might be the breath at a certain part of your body, for example. And that turns into really subtle layers of meditative absorption. Loving kindness is one of the supports for meditative absorption. So just meditating, and usually how this is presented is you meditate on the afterglow of loving kindness. So if you ever practice, this is just mundane kindness, and you feel like this afterglow of whatever that is, love, <laughs> and there's a feeling of warmth, this is likened to the first jhana, and you actually meditate on the radiation, that radiance of loving kindness. That becomes your support. It's very subtle. Yeah. I just the other day, actually, when I was at retreat, I saw in my in my sink this ant had fallen to a little fallen into a little pool of water and it was kind of drowning, you know. So I got a little piece of toilet paper and I <laughs> stuck it in there and he crawled on, on the toilet paper. And then I, I set him I set him outside, and, and I just watched him, and he was wet, but he was fine. So he was kind of cleaning off, you know, and not doing that thing. And I remember I walked in, and it wasn't even subtle. It was, very, it was a very strong sense of, of uh, joyfulness. It was joyfulness, yeah. So we could take that feeling, right, and that becomes the support.
<coughs> and this is all in the sutta. So this is what we're going to go over next. And maybe before, let me see what we're doing on time. <coughs> So uh, we'll, we'll go over the different, it's actually in three different parts, the Metta Sutta, which we're going to go over in a moment. Uh, but maybe I'll say a little bit about, um, a little bit more about the motivation. just want to read a couple things. So the Metta Sutta, as I was beginning to say, is called the philosophy and practice of universal love. And this, this idea of universal love is common throughout the Metta Sutta. And as a path, it's universal love leading to freedom of mind. So the idea is that when we have this pure, open heart, the mind, the freedom of mind is right around the corner, right? And this is a great quote, and I cannot say this venerable's name. Um, <laughs> Buddha... Rakita, I know it's really bad. But anyway, he has a fantastic um, description of practicing metta as the path. The practice of metta thus can be likened to bring into being a great tree. From the time the seed is sown to the time the tree is heavily laden with luscious fruits and sends forth its sweet odor far and wide, attracting myriads of creatures to, to it to enjoy its tasty and nutritious, and nutritious bounty. The sprouting of the seed and the growth of the plant are, as it were, brought about by the first part of the sutta. In the second part, the tree, robust and developed, is fully covered with fragrant and beautiful flowers, riveting all eyes upon it. As a pattern of behavior, the first aspect of metta makes one's life grow like a tree, useful, generous, and noble. Metta, as meditation, affects the spiritual radiance whereby one's entire life becomes a source of joy for all. The third part in this imagery, the fruition of that process of spiritual development whereby one brings about an all-embracing application of spiritual love which can powerfully condition society as a whole and lead one to the heights of transcendental realization. Okay, so what he meant by that, the three stages. So the first stage, you'll, you'll see that the Metta Sutta is broken in three different parts. Yeah? Three distinct parts. The first section is actually the ethics. So there's uh, what to do and what not to do. And so you see that there's like what to do should be capable, uh, upright, straightforward, easy to speak to, gentle, not proud, contented and easily supported, living lightly with few duties, wise and with senses calmed. So this is about the ethics of what to cultivate. And then what not to do, like not arrogant, not with greed, um, not unwise. And this translation is actually, it's a little, it's a little messed up <laughs> in that those actual two, the two lines at the beginning of the second part are supposed to be on, up on top, actually, because that's the actual fruition of ethics. 
the fruition of the ethics is may all, it's like this, with this afterglow of ethics, may all be happy and secure, may all beings be happy at heart. So that actually goes with the ethics part. And that's also considered the day-to-day part of the practice. So how we live our life day-to-day. Do these morals and ethics, these morals and ethics, or um, informal practice. The second piece is actually the meditation practice, and this will sound familiar. So this is the practice that could take us to samadhi. This is the support of the practice. So when we do formal practice of metta. There's many different types, but a very common one is to say phrases like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be free from harm, may you be at ease. And then we take those phrases and send them out to different categories, ourself, loved ones, a neutral person, a difficult person, and then all beings. So that's the formal practice. And so here it is outlined, like all living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise anyone anywhere. Let no one through anger or aversion wish for others to suffer. And again, there's this theme of universal love. And the reason why universal love is so powerful is because it overthrows the self, which is one of the very, the, the idea of a separate self um, of course we exist, but not in the way that we think we do, as, as it's, it's likened to be said. But the, it overthrows what we call the small, the small self or the ego self. And once that is overthrown, then we feel connected to all beings and we can move into either emptiness or fullness, depending on how you want to look at it. And this last one is the commitment to the philosophy of universal love. And this is like the pole star of our life. Like how do we lead our life? It's through this intention and this commitment to universal love. So that's the last piece. This is like the actual intention, motivation for being, motivation for the practice, and it's a sincere commitment to this principle of universal love. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her child, her only child, so toward all beings should one cultivate a boundless heart. With loving kindness for the whole world should one cultivate a boundless heart. Above, below, and all around, without obstruction, without hate, without ill will, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, whenever one is awake, may one stay with this recollection. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. So um, another thing is that <laughs> this translation is missing a line. How many people got that? Huh? Yeah, yeah. It's missing a line. Um, this is a, a secular translation. And the line that it's missing is uh, one that has to do with, it, it basically says that one who practices, practices the Metta Sutra 
is fully liberated and will no longer have to incarnate into the will of samsara. And what that means is, what's that? I said that was a big miss. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big miss. It's true. It's a secular translation because it's, um, then you need to unpack what is, what is samsara and it moves into reincarnation. So if you're teaching a secular, like this is, this Metta Sutta is taught in MBSR, within clinical settings, all the time. It's, and so it, it's brought in to that, just so people know where it comes from and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> but just for those that want to dive into that part, it is saying that liberation is absolute and complete, and one no longer needs to even incarnate in form anymore uh, with this practice. That's how powerful the practice is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, this is from Ajahn Lee, a much easier name. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> to purify the heart, we have to disentangle our attachments to self, to the body, to mental phenomena and to all the objects that come passing through the senses. Keep the mind intent on concentration. Keep it at one at all times. Don't let it become two, three, four, five. Because once you've made the mind one, it's easy to make it zero. Simply cut off the little head and pull the two ends together. But if you let the mind become many, it's a long, difficult job to make it zero. Add another thing. If you put the zero after other numbers, they become 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, hundreds, thousands, onto infinity. But if you put the zeros first, even if you have 10,000 of them, they don't count. So it is with the heart. Once we've turned it from one to zero and put the zero first, then other people can praise or criticize us as they like, but it won't count. Good doesn't count. Bad doesn't count. This is something that can't be written, can't be read, that we can understand only for ourselves. So we started that off. To purify the heart, we have to disentangle our attachments to self, to the body, to the mental phenomena. Like when we make the self all of these aggregates, right? We just keep adding. Just make it one. And then we can make it zero. A friend of mine on, on Facebook posted about the different dimensions of consciousness. Like third dimension, fourth dimension, fifth dimension, sixth dimension, seventh dimension. And like where telepathy, subtle body, clairvoyance, all these different things happen. And... I wanted to write, like, you know, there was 3D, 4D, 5D. I wanted to write no D. <laughs> no D. That which all those dimensions spring out of, the infinite potentiality, there's infinite mental states. But what is the source of all the mental states? Like, where is that? That's the no D. That's the, no, the none, the zero. Right? We become zero. When we become zero, we become everything, mm -hmm. right? Mm 
But if we want to be one, then we're just one. You could be one glorious, amazing self, or you could be everything. But only, like say, not, not only love could take us there, like wisdom could take us there, because wisdom and love at the end are the same. But I told this story at the retreat, so Donald's going to have to hear it again. <laughs> um, but I'll make it short because we don't have much time. Uh, but uh, Katie and I, actually, where we met, we met um, on a trip to Nepal. But when we were there, we are at one of the stupas, one of the really beautiful stupas. If you're not familiar with the stupa, it's... It's the uh, physical representation of the path to enlightenment in Buddhism. They build these really big, beautiful stupas. And this one's very large, and there's um, all these shops and whatnot all around in this big courtyard. And Lama Zoba, who is this really incredible lama, he, he came into this area. And there's all these monasteries around the stupa, so they just started pouring out with these monks and nuns. They started pouring out to see Lama Zopa. And I looked out. We were in one of the little shops, and I looked out the door, and I saw Venerable <coughs> Roger, who's Lama Zopa's attendant. And I was very excited because I knew Lama Zopa was close. And we had brought katas, which is double awesome. So the kata is a scarf that you can give to a lama, and then they give you a blessing. They give it back to you with a blessing. And so Lamba Zopa was talking to this amazing sage-like being straight out of a movie. Just He had the long hair and the, the, the mustache, and it was just like something out of a movie. And he was in this very odd monk attire, but they were white and gold. I'd never seen it quite like that. And so I... Um, I knew Venerable Roger, so I talked to him and I said, you know, who's Lama Zopa talking to? And he said, I don't know. He said, but it's quite amazing that every time Lama Zopa comes, he appears out of nowhere. And they just love each other. Like Lama Zopa loves talking to him. It's really, really incredible. And so as luck would have it, Lama Zopa went down this little alleyway and this monk sat down. And so I sat down next to him, and I asked him his name. He says, uh, Kimpo White Jigme. Kimpo is a uh, title. So Kimpo, uh, Kimpo has gone through five years of university and also done a three-year retreat. And um, he had long hair, so I figured he was in the Nyingma tradition. And so I asked him a little bit about retreat and he, if he's been able to do much. Yeah, because he was talking about where he lived. He pointed up towards like the Himalayas and said, you know, up there. <laughs> and, um, and I said, D- were you able to do much retreat? And he said, um, I wasn't able to do that much. I was only able to do 12 years because the <laughs> snow was too deep. <laughs> only 12 years. And I asked him, I said, um, how did you know that Lama Zopa was here? Like you Lama Zopa friends. And he says, um, sometimes I know a little bit, and this is the monk way of saying, because, you know, they break their vows. If they show any realization, if they say any realization, they break their vow. So if you ever sat 
in a room with the High Lama, it's really frustrating because they can't, you just, I want to say like, tell me what you can know and whatnot, and they, they won't. They'll just say like the Dalai Lama, I'm a normal, I'm just an average man, that, that's it. But I've heard my other teacher, who oddly is named Jigme too, but in the States, this other um, from Bhutan, he'll say, sometimes I know a little bit. So he said, sometimes I know a little bit. He says, I'm meditating, and when I'm meditating, in my mind, I say, oh, Lama Zop is at stupa. <laughs> <laughs> and then I come down to stupa. Oh. So sometimes I know a little bit. And what was so amazing, that whole time, his heart was just overflowing with devotion for Lama Zopa. He kept interrupting like our little discussion, and he kept saying, he kept looking at me and saying, Lama Zopa said he's going to come back. Lama Zopa said he's going to come back. And he kept pointing down this alleyway where Lama Zopa went. Right? Lama Zopa is going to come back. And then the next part, I don't know how we got on this or anything, but out of seemingly nowhere from my memory, which is not that good anyway, but he just said, he said, when the heart is pure, wisdom falls effortlessly from the clear blue sky. And he pointed to the sky. When the heart is pure, wisdom falls effortlessly from the clear blue sky. And so being a Nyingma Lama, the clear blue sky is often the analogy for our natural, natural, radiant, unfettered, clear, luminous mind. Right? That's their analogy, the most common analogy in that tradition. Right? When the heart is pure. And for me, it was quite a little bit of an epiphany because I have been struggling with the merging of the two. Right? It kind of felt like separate practices. Breath practice, medic practice. Where do these converge? And sometimes, let's say my personal practice, I would struggle so much in meditation. Like meditate, meditate, meditate. And I, w- I used to be like very, very like hardcore, you know, just like striving, striving mind. Like I needed to attain it so badly, mm-hmm. right? And really, uh, I, I didn't get anywhere, right? And <laughs> it was this heart. It was this, it's this loving heart. It's, it's effortless. When the heart is pure, wisdom falls effortlessly from the clear blue sky. It's not, it's not a struggle, right? We land there effortlessly. It's so easy. And then when we hear these things like the Dalai Lama saying, my religion is simple, my religion is kindness. Like, I used to look at that saying, oh, that's a cute little thing to post on Facebook or something, but he's not. That's not really true. He probably does, like, high tantra practice, you know, the Vajrayana, Tantrayana uh, practices. They're very elaborate. Like, there's, that's one of the deities, there's a protector deity there in Tibetan Buddhism, protecting the Dharma. So this is very complex stuff, Yeah. Yet he'll say something like, my religion is simple, my religion is kindness. And I think it's true. <laughs> it's, like, it's so true. It's just that. So, so simple. So simple. So maybe let's um, do a little meta-practice.
And we're going to do one a little different than the phrases. Heater still on over there? I just, yes. I just turned it on. Oh, good. Good. No, go no you want it on? No, I'm, no. I'm cool. Turn no, 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 no. Keep it on. I, I thought it was annoying, yeah, so I just turned it on. I got a scarf. I'm cool. I got a scarf. Oh, okay. So maybe first just collecting our awareness into the body. starting off with a little bit of self-kindness as we move into a practice. Now moving in with the mind of striving, the mind of doing it right, the mind of getting somewhere, the mind of lack. We need to be better. Maybe move into the meditation with a sense of discovery or adventure as an explorer. Mining the depths of our own of our own being, our own love and kindness. Allowing a time to come to mind when you felt love. When you felt kindness. This could be very simple love, like a snuggle of a cat. A phone call from a friend. Even a stranger's smile. also be somewhere where you gave love, like you thought a loving thought about somebody or performed a loving action.
it's okay if you don't get all warm and fuzzy. Just sitting with whatever is, whatever arises. Just tune in where you feel that the most. In your heart center, but whatever that means to you. See if you can get a felt sense of love or kindness in the body, in your awareness. See if you can zero in. On how that feels in the body-mind. just collecting it in your heart to where it's almost a thing, a light. You may even visualize it as a ball of light. radiating loving-kindness. And then this light may be dim, this intention or this feeling might feel dim, it might feel very powerful, but however it, feel, however it feels is fine. And then with a sincere intention for yourself, because we cannot give what we don't have, so sending loving kindness to yourself first, just letting that radiate throughout your own being. You could visualize this loving kindness, this wish for yourself to be happy, starting from your heart center, and just radiating out through your physical body. May I be happy.
me, I be at ease. You could even move this light through the different bodies of self, the emotional body, the mental body, the physical body, of course, the spiritual body. This light is cleansing, removing old habits of anger, jealousy, greed. Cleansing, purifying. Until every cell of your being is vibrating with this divine light of perfect love. Every cell of your being is smiling, beaming with happiness. As this light becomes stronger and stronger, it cannot be held anymore within the parameters of your physical body. And it starts to extend out to those around you. May my brothers and sisters be happy too that are in this room. be filled with peace and joy, feeling this light connect, awaken the love within them. intention of loving kindness for each other is filling up this room so much so that it too cannot be contained. Just feeling this radiating loving kindness extend out of this room into the community around us. May all my brothers and sisters, without exception, 
they be happy, may they be free. Extending beyond our community and also folding in all the animals, the insects, all being seen or unseen. In this state, into the ocean, into the sky. into the nation, and covering the globe. May all barrier, barriers between nations and people all fall away. May we all meet at zero, infinite love. dropping the, vis the visualization and coming back to how you feel in your body, your mind. And for the next minute, a minute and a half, just fully be present with how you feel as a support, as an anchor for your meditation. When the mind wanders, just come back.
end with the benefits of metta, of practicing the metta sutta. These are very classic um, descriptions of if, if we get if we do the practice, these eleven things will be prevalent in our life. You will sleep easily. That's nice. You will wake easily, even better. You will have pleasant dreams. People will love you. This is true. Divas, celestial beings, and animals will love you. Divas will protect you. I don't know about that, but sounds good. <laughs> External dangers like poisons, weapons, or fire, fire will not harm you. I wouldn't try that, like, after meta, like, burning yourself. But I think they, I think they mean, like, on a deeper deeper. Uh, deeper suffering level. Your face will be radiant. I've met people like that. Your mind will be serene. You will die unconfused. That's very, that's very nice. You will be reborn in happy realms. And uh, the last thing too, or maybe I said that was the last thing, here's a second last thing, is that meta is a maturing Force. It's said to ripen all of our, all of our good deeds, all of our merits, all of our past merits. Uh, practicing generosity and patience. When we when we practice loving kindness, all of those come to fruition. They're all of the merits of that. Sometimes people practice, start practicing loving kindness, and things start happening in, the, in their life that, um, that are goodness starts to come, starts to fill up their life. So. I don't know where the time went. That was so fast. It's like 11.30 already. Like, it's gone. So I hope uh, maybe for you it was like so slow. Like, come on, be done. I don't know. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, let's just say an ending prayer. Um, although we just did, we had a, I forgot to include uh, all the people in the prayer box. So let's, actually, let's just sit just for a moment one more time. And let's just dedicate the merit of our practice here together, all the wisdom, love, compassion, all the goodness, all the positivity that was accumulated by each and every one of us, by sitting, listening, being still. May this very merit be directed to all beings especially those in our prayer box that need healing. May all their obscurations be cleared. And may all the obscurations of ignorance, greed, anger in our nation, all the the division that's happening now in our nation, may it too be cleared. May people come into a state of togetherness.
to say one last thing. <laughs> Can't help it. I have so much. I love this subject. Um, I know we talked about the Metta Sutta, and, and it's Buddhist. Um, but what I didn't get to read, and I just think it's so important to remember that this is universal. Whether we look at Christianity or Hinduism, I was I had a lot of quotes from the Bhagavad Gita or from the Bible. This this love is a path absolute, absolutely everywhere, right? It's in um, every religion, and all the spiritual teachers talk about this love and devotion. So um, it's a pretty safe practice to do. That is going to get us uh, into a good place. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.